If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Julia Zolver about her book titled High Risk Feminism in Colombia, Women's Mobilization in Violent Contexts, which was published um, just this year in 2022 from Rutgers University Press. The book is absolutely fascinating through some pretty intensive fieldwork and research Dr. Julia Zolver, who's with us today, documents the experiences of grassroots women's organizations that united to demand justice, specifically gender-based justice, during and in the aftermath of Colombia's long-running conflict. Um, This was a really fascinating book in terms of how the research was done, how the case studies were brought together, what the investigation revealed about how women in this context of quite a lot of everyday violence, um, nevertheless are willing and mobilize and work together to resist it, even when that actually puts them in more danger. Um, So I'm really excited and pleased to welcome you, Julia, to the podcast to tell us more about your book. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here and to speak more with you. Wonderful. Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself a bit and explain why you decided to write this book? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, my name is Dr. Julia Zulfer, and I am currently a Marie Curie Research Fellow. Uh, It's a position funded by the European Commission, and I am hired by the University of Oxford, but I'm in Mexico City at the National University, the UNAM, for two years on secondment. Uh, And then I'll be going back to Oxford afterwards. But this book, the one we're talking about today came out of my DPhil, actually my MPhil and my DPhil at the University of Oxford in sociology um, between 2012 and 2018. It was a DPhil project that afterwards I continued to do more research on in some other research capacities and during the pandemic came together as, as a proper book. Um, why I decided to, to write the thesis or what interested me, I suppose, about the thesis was 
after spending time uh, originally in El Salvador and then uh, significant amounts of time in Colombia, one of the things that I really saw was these instances and examples of women's organizations in the loosest sense of the word, neighborhood organizations, groups of friends, uh, mothers' organizations, really kind of in, in neighborhoods, in small um, kind of grassroots areas, coming together to make demands for women's rights and for gender justice, despite living in incredibly violent contexts where sticking your neck out effectively puts a target on your head. It didn't seem to make sense to me. Why would people behave in these instances of high-risk collective action when the threats or the risk of violence or even death is high? How do you offset that balance um, when, when thinking about whether or not to participate? Yet, as I mentioned, these are organizations and examples and, and uh, actions and strategies that I was seeing through other work I was doing in, in a whole variety of different contexts. And so it really interested me to explore that question of both why and how women in particular choose to overcome the very gendered barriers to mobilization that they face in order to make demands um, on the armed groups in the areas where they live, and also on the societies and the governments that, in theory, into differing levels, uh, control and, and govern their communities, their, their provinces, and, and their countries. So that's where the impetus for the book came from. Uh, as I said, it was originally a DPhil project, and then it's really kind of stayed with me and and that's why I chose to develop it a little bit further with some more research and turn it into the book that it is now. Amazing. Um thank you for sharing that with us. I think um it's always interesting to kind of hear the journey that a book takes before it ends up um in this lovely polished final product um and to kind of see a bit about how it got there. Um, and I'm hoping we can do a bit of a tour of the book through this interview. Obviously, we're not going to be able to go into the same amount of detail that the book itself does, um, but hopefully we can touch on at least some of the main points. Um, and so the obvious place to start is with the title. And I was wondering, because you do talk about this um, really helpfully, I think, in the book itself, if you could tell us a little bit about sort of the two key terms in the title, high-risk feminism in Colombia, what do you mean sort of by high risk in this particular context? And tell us a bit about your choice of using the word feminism. Sure. So the word high risk comes from precisely the risks that women take on by engaging in these actions and strategies and joining these women's organizations that I document in the book. Um, for me, these risks are layered. So in the context of Colombia's armed conflict, what we saw, particularly in the late 90s and into the early 2000s, was uh, the, the moving in of paramilitary groups into areas that were at that point largely controlled by different leftist guerrilla groups. I won't go into the history. Uh, you can look it up or you can read the book. But what we saw were these intense and violent clashes as the different armed groups 
sought control. And by control, I mean both territorial control over areas that were valuable in terms of illicit crops used to grow and or, and produce and then transport illegal drugs, um, also around illegal minerals and mining. Uh, so the territory itself is valuable, but also these armed groups were looking to get social control. So to control the communities, the towns, the small cities uh, where they were where they were entering. Um, this was ideological in some senses. The paramilitaries were very right-wing. The guerrillas were operating on a leftist, uh, more insurgent logic. And so to get back to the question of high risk, what we see or what we saw is that any kind of community cohesion, any kind of collective action was frowned upon, punished and repressed and repressed, sorry, by these armed groups. So anyone who contests their uh, their dominance, their ability to come in and govern, is engaging in high risk behavior, with the the potential outcomes being, um, you know, forced labor, violence, uh, disappearance, murder, attacking of families, uh, all manner of horrible things. And so, when it comes to women, though, there's this other layer of high risk because not only are women who are engaging in collective action going against what the armed groups want in terms of how the community community should behave, but they're women. So they're transgressing the norms of what women are supposed to do. They're going against the imposed gender norms about women's roles, which are in the house, in the kitchen, taking care of children, and certainly not making demands uh, in public spaces. And then I think the third layer there uh, of risk is that the women who I spent time with were making demands around gender-based justice or women's rights, women's equality. They were saying, what's happening to us as women in this context of armed conflict? We're being used, uh, our, our bodies, our lives are being used to enact punishment. We are uh, one of the battlefields in, in this conflict. And so in contesting that or demanding uh, making demands against that, they were kind of doubling down or tripling down on the transgression that they were engaging in in front of these armed actors who had every ability and did have every ability and, and did use horrific violence against them and against their communities. So that's where the high risk bit comes. I've sort of hinted towards it, but the use of the word feminism or feminist um, it ties to that third point. So it's women effectively saying that they want to, or the women wanted to um, contest the power dynamics. They wanted to change these gendered power dynamics in the conflict settings and look to promote women's rights to live lives from, free from violence, um, to perhaps engage in economic empowerment, but effectively to say this imposition of these very traditional gender roles where women have very specific places in the community, we we don't agree with that. And we want to call on the armed groups not to impose those. And also we want to call on the government and the international community to make good on the rights that we do have and to even push for more rights. The word feminism, though, you know, can be a touchy one, particularly in Colombia and in Latin America, where it's a word, it's a buzzword that can have a lot of meanings that can be used um, in a negative or kind of an attacking way sometimes. And so in the introduction to the book, I do question whether it's necessarily the appropriate term, particularly because some of the women's organizations that I work with don't necessarily care for the term. I must say that others absolutely openly identify as feminists, but others 
talk more about women's rights or talk talk more about women rather than feminism. For some, and this is particularly with the uh, racial and ethnic organizations that I worked with, they don't like some of the neo-colonial overtones that go with feminism, which they see as a white liberal project. So I remember one time being told or having it referred to to me that I was a quote unquote suit wearing feminism, uh, feminist, sorry, uh, which I think kind of gave me an understanding of what that term and what that word meant to this particular organization. Um, and so I use the word hesitantly, but I do think that it is the best qualitative descriptor of the phenomenon that I'm really trying to draw out and illustrate in the book, which is one that is reflecting the women's goals to change power dynamics, change the gendered power dynamics in these conflict settings, and really looking to promote women's rights and and gender equality more broadly. Mm. Lots of different, as you said, layers um, happening there. So I'm really glad that you've explained um, those terms and again obviously you do explain them and investigate it in the book and I think that's always really interesting when people like interrogate their titles in their writing um, that creates this amazing foundation for kind of the rest of the book so hopefully it will provide a wonderful foundation for the rest of the interview as well um, so the obvious kind of next structural question to understand your research is to take a look at the organizations that you focus on for the case studies so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about kind of um, not just sort of telling us the names of the ones you chose, but really sort of take us into your thinking and process of how you selected um, that these were going to be the organizations you'd look at. Absolutely. So I can do it in two parts. I can tell you what the goal was, and then I can tell you how I did it. Uh, so the goal was to really feature the work of very local, uh, local level, very grassroots organizations that don't always get recognized. Um, these are women who may not have very high levels of education. Um, most of them come from very poor backgrounds. Uh, they don't necessarily have the technical skills um, that maybe line up with what Sonia Alvarez would talk about, uh, the kind of the NGOization um, of, of these women's organizations, meaning that they don't have the technical skills necessarily to write proposals, to fill in Excel sheets, to, um, to, to promote their causes in a way that, that you might see more kind of with national level organizations that do have a certain level of technical training when it comes to, um, to implementing certain policies or to receiving funding. So what I really wanted to look at was women's organizations that from these very organic local uh, experiences, however, still managed to come together and create organizations um, or associations that promoted their, their goals of high-risk feminism. And so that is because I think that there is, in Colombia at least, this incredibly robust feminist network at sort of the national level, at that sort of medium level of women who've come together and are organizing um, in Bogota, in Medellin, in the big cities. Um, they obviously do have ties with rural women, but it's not always rural women who get the seats at the table, um, who get to express their opinions. They may not have the language or the vocabulary to engage in, in those very specific spaces. And so what I wanted to do was go in and spend some time documenting at, at that level and, and on that plane what was going on. 
Um, and so the the who I chose and the how I chose them uh, will also kind of serve to introduce them. Uh, when Before I began my PhD, I was living in Colombia and I, I was asked to write a newspaper article with my colleague, Maya Thomas-Davis. And we had heard of this place called the City of Women. And it sounded very alluring and we didn't know very much about it. Um, and we ended up going uh, to Cartagena on the Caribbean coast, drawing on some contacts and finding finding some links to the City of Women, which is about uh, you know an hour and a half on the bus outside the city. Um, the city of Cartagena, sorry. And so we went and we met this organization. The organization is called the Liga de Mujeres Desplazadas, the League of Displaced Women, who during the armed conflict, one of their biggest strategies after being displaced from all over the North Coast was to physically build themselves a city of women where the women hold the deeds, uh, the titles to the houses. And it was this amazing example of peaceful resistance in the middle of a conflict zone. So I met them for the newspaper article. And uh, then I decided when I was beginning my PhD that I really wanted to follow up and do a much deeper dive with them to learn about their history, to learn about the building of the city and to learn about uh, what they've been doing since the building of the city as Colombia has gone through a peace process has come into what's nominally being called nominally being called a post peace era sorry a post there's a Freudian slip a post accord or a post conflict era and understand how they're negotiating and navigating uh, some of the some of the violence which has uh, increased since the peace accords um the other organization uh, after Mupas, the second one that I met, I actually met with when I was with the Liga. I was in Bogota. We went to a big meeting held by the Ministry of Justice that was looking at inviting women's organizations for all, from all over the country to understand how, in the lead up to the peace accords, they could properly deal with the issue of conflict-related sexual violence. I heard some women speaking. I thought they were amazing. I went up, I met them after the the meeting was over and, and I ended up doing and spending um, time with them in Bogota as my second case study. The third case study in the book is what we call a negative case. So it's a case where the conditions are very similar. The population is very similar, but we don't actually see the phenomenon uh, that I that I was looking at. We don't see these experiences of high-risk feminism. At that point, having spent a lot of time in Colombia, that was really um, kind of drawing on my contacts and and finding a, a good friend and contact who told me that she had been working and done some work with a women's kind of loosely called organization. But, you know, we had this long discussion about why they weren't behaving in the same way that I'd seen the other organizations work. And so I ended up spending a lot of time with them in La Guajira, which is a, a province next to the border with Venezuela. And then finally, the final organization, the Alianza in Putumayo, which is at the very south of the country uh, next to the border with Ecuador. I had heard about them. They are a, a decently well-known organization, even though they, at the national level, although they, they participate very locally in their province. I had heard about them in um, some document, read about them in some documents put forth by the country's center for um, National Center for Historical Memory. And then when I was explaining my DFIL project, because this organization actually didn't uh, doesn't fit in the thesis, it, it came later. Um, I was explaining my thesis to a government uh, official at the Department for Social Prosperity. And she said, you know, you have to go and meet these women. You just really have to. And then 
kind of as life had it, I ended up in Puerto Mayo for a totally different project and thought, I'm going to go and find them. And I went and I found them and just made this amazing connection and continued to, to do work with them. So these are four different organizations from four different parts of the country. But what they all do is um, from this very localized grassroots, bottom up, a way of mobilizing, they illustrate this phenomenon of high, phenomenon of high risk feminism that I really wanted to to um, to talk about, to discuss, and and to give a voice to in the book. Hmm. Thank you for explaining that and giving us a little sort of taste of um, some of the specific qualities and aspects of each of the four organizations um, that you focus on that I think we'll probably get into a little bit more detail with some of them, though obviously the book really has rich, in-depth information and stories. So now that we kind of have those foundational aspects, um, I'm wondering if you can tell us maybe with an example or something from your uh, the organizations you um, look at, you've told us a little bit about why women run additional risks when mobilizing, and that there's kind of transgressions or perceived transgressions on multiple different layers. Um, can you tell us a little bit about kind of to what extent this is about women um, mobilizing in general just the idea of women should be seen and not heard and so if they are trying to do anything that's a problem um what or what this has to do with women mobilizing specifically about gender issues um and maybe sort of how you see those risks playing out or you saw those risks playing out in one or two of the organizations you've just introduced us to absolutely so as i was mentioning before these various armed groups including the armed forces, I would say, the the country's armed forces, that dominate and seek control, this territorial and social territorial and social control, operate under a highly militarized style of masculinity. So what this means is that they value these traditional sources of power, as you say, women should be seen and not heard. Um, they like guns and force and strength. Uh, And so there are roles for men and there are roles for women and women's roles are in the house or caring for children or in the kitchen. Um, And so when women mobilize, as I kind of spoke to before, they are transgressing not only this imposed order on the entire community, but also along gender lines or against these established gender norms. Um, There's a line actually in one of the reports, which was written by the National Center for Historical Memory about how in the Caribbean coast, when the paramilitaries, uh, you know, began their first incursions, they didn't even like to see two or three women sitting on a porch, um, because that could mean that they were sitting and talking and they were sitting and gossiping. And that was a threat that could be punished because they didn't want women to engage in any networking. They wanted them to be divided, isolated, and, and not engaging in any kind of cohesive um, or cohesion activities. I think, though, to your question of whether it was women mobilizing along this question of gender justice that that adds another layer of risk, I think absolutely that's the case. Um, One of the first examples that comes to mind, actually, is that when I was in Putumayo, I remember speaking um, to some of the leaders and and they were telling me that they had been receiving these increased threats uh, recently. This was a few years ago because women had decided 
to get lawyers and to make official declarations before the country's uh, transitional justice mechanisms um, and potentially uh, even to um, the HEP, the Special Jurisdiction for Peace, uh, against specific crimes that they had faced and gender-based violence crimes that they'd faced, particularly within and specifically within the realm of armed conflict. So these women were saying, we're actually going to go and name names about who did um, you know, give the orders for sexual violence to be used, who was um, engaging in, in sexual violence against us, who was um, kind of making us fill these these kind of material support roles or, you know, going and, and helping out or cooking or cleaning for the armed groups. And so by uh, engaging in these organizational activities, which in part means denouncing and making visible in public the specifically gendered violence that they'd faced, they were now receiving extra threats. And this is something that I've heard actually from all of the different organizations I worked with by participating in these specifically women's victims associations um, and shining a light on the ways that gender-based violence were used as strategies of war, they expose themselves to uh, additional risks of retributional or retributive, perhaps is the proper word, um, or at least backlash violence. I think also um, a lot of what the women were making demands for, even though um, there's kind of a non-gendered component to it as well. They were highlighting displacement. They were highlighting that their partners had been uh, killed or wounded and that they now were single mothers. Um, They were highlighting economic stresses. They were highlighting that the armed groups were recruiting their children. Even though those are things that both men and women definitely suffered, when women explained it with this gender lens on it, or when they mobilized against it with this gender lens about what it meant, for example, in terms of women's care responsibilities, or what it meant in terms of uh, women having to go and look for their children or find their children, it really kind of tapped again into that highly militarized masculinity um, and and served as a challenge to it, which for me and, and for the women that I was working with um, means that, yes, it, it definitely did require that they, they ran um, additional risks. Again, that's not to say that in mixed organizations or in men's organizations, there weren't very high risks. And if, you know, kind of the ultimate risk is is murder or or death, um, I don't know that there's necessarily value in saying who was running the highest risk. But all I mean to say is that women absolutely, because of these gender norms that they were breaching, um, were engaging in a certain kind of transgression, which which was heavily punished and, and heavily, um, I don't think you can say backlashed against, but that's what I'm going to say. Yeah, um, received by, backlash yeah. for, maybe? Yeah, received backlash for by these, these armed groups. Yeah. Well, thank you for explaining that, because I think um, there does sometimes become hesitancy of like, well, who's had it worse? And it's like, no, 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 that's not the point here. Um, Mm -hmm. The point is to understand what the different dynamics are and they might be different dynamics that um, still mean that different kinds of groups are still under threat. It doesn't make one worse than the other or et cetera, Um, but it's worth unpacking kind of what's actually happening. So that's, thank you for explaining that. Um, And obviously the book does go into more detail for particular organizations and how that's played out in their specific context. Um, But I'd like to move to uh, something about your book that 
to be honest, I read it and was like, oh yeah, duh. Um, but I hadn't really thought about the impact of it until I read the book, which is about the importance um, of the urban setting, of the physical setting in being something that um, you argue in the book and you talk about in the book, that this is an enabling factor for women to mobilize, um, even if those urban settings aren't like their actual original home, right? Maybe that's they've come into the urban areas after being displaced, for example. Um, so I'm wondering if you can help us kind of understand um, maybe this journey, you know, how how is it that this urban neighborhood setting um, influences decisions around mobilization along gendered lines, um, maybe even encourages it? Absolutely. And yeah, it is kind of a, a simple answer. And when I say it, it'll kind of, as you say, be like a, oh, duh moment. But I think it's really important to highlight um, one of the things, and I've, I've alluded to this, is that the women who I worked with aren't necessarily longtime activists. They're not necessarily people who have this long, um, drawn-out history of having participated in social movements, although some did, but the vast majority didn't. And pretty frankly, that's because they lived in very rural areas. Most of them lived in farms or in small towns where they didn't have much contact with other people. And so if they were going to have met others, it would have been, you know, when they went to church on Sunday or when they had the money to go into town to the market. Um, but what happened and the reason that these women got to know each other is because they were displaced by the armed conflict. So the armed groups came in and they had to leave their homes either by force or because of the threat of violence. And so they ended up in urban neighborhoods, which was the only place that they could think to flee to. So this is uh, for the Liga, the Pos El Pozón, and which is a slum outside Cartagena. For Afromupas, these women came from the Colombia's Pacific coast and ended up in this locality, this neighborhood in the south of Bogota. Um, and when they were suddenly in these close quarters with other women who had suffered similar experiences, they could realize that it wasn't just them. And I'll get into this when we talk about the strategies more, but one of the big challenges to women's mobilization or to women knowing that they had the ability to mobilize is that a lot of people experienced horrific things and thought that it was something about them or thought that it was a unique or individual experience because they didn't hadn't spoken to anyone else really about it. Um, and that's particularly the case with specific kinds of violence, which are, are shameful and incredibly intimate, like conflict-related sexual violence. And so by coming together and being neighbors, new neighbors forced into these situations with other women who'd also suffer, suffered similarly to them, they were able to know that they weren't alone, know that others had suffered this, and to think about common concerns or issues or challenges that they were facing. This is actually an argument that Marx and Engels talk about when they're talking about face-to-face -face relationships um, when it comes to, to facilitating mobilization. So as I said, these women may not have been able to travel to, to towns previously uh, for meetings or when they were isolated out on, on their farms, they, they didn't know what was going on. And so by being forced into displacement and then forced to live in these really cramped quarters often, this was an enabling factor for them to then come together and to start participating in collective action. Hmm. You talk about another really key enabling factor um, in both sort of a positive sense and also where it's lacking, um, showing kind of the consequences of that as well, which is um, a, is leadership, really. 
um, even within these situations, it's not necessarily a given to move from learning that others have similar experiences to then kind of mobilizing in an organized way. Um, and that really requires, as you show in the book, um, leadership. But you also talk about kind of, it's not just any old leader, um, that there are particular qualities and relevant aspects of leadership that are needed to sort of mobilize in these circumstances. So I'm wondering if you can kind of tell us about the, the types of leadership um, in these situations and sort of how that transforms things from women kind of starting to share their experiences to um, something perhaps more organized. Absolutely. So in the book, I talk a lot about charismatic leadership, which comes out of the typology that Weber made many decades ago. And, and I think there's still a lot that can be uh, taken from his typology and taken from his understanding of charismatic leadership. But in the book, I really am documenting this gendered charismatic leadership. So what happens when it's women talking about specific issues that have happened to women because of the gendered power dynamics of an armed conflict. And so one of the things that really is key that shone through throughout the book and throughout the research is that there needs to be a leader who can encourage participation and action despite these high risks that I've now talked about um, that this participation may entail for participants. Effectively, she needs to convince women why it could be worth their while to participate in something that could lead to more violence rather than just stay at home. Um, the leader, this particular leader, really needs to inspire confidence. She needs to be a symbol that of hope that there is kind of inspiration for, for a better tomorrow. Um, that all of the violence that these women have experienced have it doesn't necessarily need to project forward into the future, but that these women can come together and do something about it. Um, there's a, another kind of research project, a, a book that I really like by Madsen and Snow, where they talk less about the charismatic leadership and more about the charismatic bond, which is this kind of two-way uh, relationship where a charismatic leader comes in and constituents are willing to accept a certain level of control, so long as the leader can actually promise not only this promise and this hope, but actually also make good on um, the promises. So there need to be some kind of benefits coming through. And what I saw with the different leaders that I worked with is that not only were they able to encourage women and show them why it actually is worth their while to participate in a risky organization, um, but also that there are material and non-material benefits to doing so that effectively are a club good. They only You only get access to the benefits if you decide to join. And so one of the ways they do this um, is by showing that just staying home and doing nothing and not joining by no means represents being safe. Um, as a woman in a controlled community or a community where armed groups are, are using violence, staying home doing nothing, sitting on your porch and chatting to your neighbor can be a risky activity. And so, yes, participating in an association or a women's organization absolutely may be more risky, but that risk differential can be justified when you think about these different benefits. Um, and as I say, these benefits are, are both non-material and material. So what are some of these benefits? Um, and, and maybe... I don't know, maybe it would help to um, see some, hear some particular examples of a benefit. 
Absolutely. So the non-material benefits are, are largely psychological. So I was talking before about feelings of knowing that you're not the only one who suffered a, a certain uh, violence, um, feelings of belonging, feelings of solidarity, having this organization which gives some kind of meaning and order to everyday life. Um, it can also be about healing and the potential for emotional support, being able to talk about what happened, being able to look for uh, psychosocial ways to overcome it. So, for example, with Afra Mupas, the organization I worked with in Bogota, they actually developed this multi-step process of healing from trauma based on their ancestral practices. They are an Afro-Colombian women's organization. And so part of this was, you know, coming together and and recognizing and talking about what had happened, saying, yeah, this happened to me. Then as a group mourning and grieving it, then deciding to move forward. And this psychological uh, process, this ability to to heal from trauma wasn't something that was being offered by other organizations or certainly wasn't being organized or offered by the state. And so those sorts of benefits, feeling as though, you know, one of the women I worked with in, in um with the Liga would always say the pain of one is the pain of all. And that's a kind of a phrase I bring up a few times in the book. It's really that understanding that by joining the organization, you get this psychological benefit of overcoming what's happened and feeling as though you're part of something, you know, a strength in numbers sort of, sort of feeling. Um, on the material side, it's also about generating a critical mass to apply for resources. So for example, the women who I mentioned who managed to build the city of women, um, they did so with funds from USAID. And they did so after having come together as an organization, lobbied and mobilized um, to get these resources. And then the leader of the organization was able to make connection with um, some, some powerful people in, in Washington and get the money that then facilitated the building of, of the, the city and of the houses. Um, these organizations have also applied, for example, for collective reparations through their country's transitional justice mechanism and law. Um, these aren't just financial benefits that go to individuals, but also um, group benefits. So, for example, getting access to um, a meeting house or a headquarters or getting access to tools like sewing machines, which can help these women generate an income. Um, in other cases, they have uh, come together as a unit to file uh, cases before the Inter-American Commission. And so all of this is to say that, uh, as I mentioned, that a lot of these women don't have particularly high levels of education. It would be largely unthinkable for them to have done all of this by themselves, let alone kind of get access to these resources as individuals. Yet as a group, they were able to draw on their connections, draw on who they knew, um, and and get access to people who did have these resources, which then benefits them at the individual level as well. Thank you for explaining that. I think it's really fascinating what a range of benefits there are, um, you know, all the way from the kind of international governance level um, to perhaps what honestly might be the more powerful of really important conversations with people who have been through similar things um, and kind of gaining a lot of psychological benefit from that. Um, but I think the key next piece to kind of introduce people to is you've obviously um, investigated not just what these organizations do, but really kind of delved into the mechanisms happening and the different similarities um, and differences across the organizations. And you bring this all together really effectively in the book. 
in a high-risk feminist mobilization framework um, that kind of gives us an organized way to understand these four organizations, but really, I imagine, probably applies to well beyond just these four case studies. Um, So I'm wondering if you can kind of introduce us now that we have such helpful context and understanding of the different things that you observed, um, if you can introduce us to the four aspects of your framework. Yeah, I will do that. And I think what I'll do is I'm going to do it through one of the cases. So I've now mentioned the Liga de Mujeres Desplazadas, the League of Displaced Women. Um, And I hope it won't be repetitive, but what I I think I'll do is go through the four um, aspects of the framework and explain how those played out in practice. So the first one is around building collective identity. So I have touched on this a little bit, but... Uh, with the, the case of the Liga, all of the women were displaced from around the country's north coast, the Caribbean coast. They ended up in a slum in El Pozon, uh, often newly widowed without knowing anyone else in these kind of horrible living conditions. It was a, a slum. It floods all the time. There's no sewage. Um, and it was controlled by other armed groups. Um, and so the first thing that this leader, this charismatic leader, uh, did when she when she decided to start organizing was to meet with a group of women who very, very loosely um, had been doing some work together. And the work that they'd been doing was they'd been putting together um, food to make a collective soup so that there's enough food to feed their children. So someone brings the carrot, someone brings the potato, someone brings the onion, and they, they make this soup. Um, And they had also come together to raise a little bit of money to buy a coffin for one of their neighbors who had died and who had no money for a burial. And so they knew each other in that sense. And the leader, uh, Patricia, came in and started talking to these women to get them to know each other, to share their stories, uh, to learn, again, that, that kind of mantra that the pain of one is the pain of all, and to understand also that their identity as women meant that they had suffered in the conflict in a different way. Um, As we know, uh, gender-based violence and particularly conflict-related sexual violence can be used as strategies. And so Patricia came and she explained this, she explained the power dynamics, and she really encouraged the women to start identifying with each other, to start finding where they had similarities, where they could connect. So that's the first part of that framework, is the collective identity building. And then... Uh, she started and, and they started through this process to generate social capital. Um, so this really gives meaning to that collective identity. It starts to create norms of solidarity within the group. It means that they bond. It means that they start thinking of themselves as an organization. Um, that's kind of the, the bonding social capital. There's another kind of social capital, which is bridging. So that's connecting this organization, <clears throat> excuse me, with others. So as I mentioned, uh, Patricia was able to get them contacts through work that she'd done previously at USAID to get this money. Um, And so building this capital, building this ability to uh, relate with the outside world as an organization uh, is the second part of the the strategy or the framework. One of the third things, uh, or the third thing that they, they did, the third strategy, which is a really important one, is that they engaged in legal framing. So what this means is that they would use the language of the state and the international community and these laws and acts and agendas that exist 
to talk about their experiences using the same language so that it became less possible to ignore them. Um, so for example, they were able to use the language of some of the transitional justice laws to register for collective reparations. They used a human rights discourse in other settings where it was appropriate and they knew that they could get benefits um, if they were using this, this specific language and framing. Um, they also, for example, went before the Inter-American Commission and used some of the language from the Women, Peace and Security agenda uh, to show why the Colombian state was not adequately protecting them. And so this framing or this um, kind of use of explaining their situation and the violences that they had suffered and were continuing to suffer in language that makes it harder to ignore and makes them harder to ignore, even though, again, these are poor, rural, largely uneducated women is one of the very specific strategies that they use um, to make demands for women's rights and that they don't just exist, but they're actually implemented and, and handed out to them. And then the final uh, aspect is certification. And certification is really a call to action to gain visibility and recognition for the organization um, that builds off the legal framing, but it's the, the actual actions that they did um, to be taken seriously. So with the Liga, for example, building this physical city as a sign of peaceful resistance against the fact that they had been kicked out of their own homes uh, is one of these acts. It's a way of saying, we are an organization, you have to take us seriously. Uh, we've been displaced. We, as victims of the armed conflict, are, we have, you have a responsibility, you kind of government and international community to take care of us. And so we're going to find this money and these resources to build our own house or our own houses. Or for example, um, to to go and do sit-ins in various um, government institutions when they weren't being taken seriously. So they had filed a number of different petitions, a number of different legal documents that just were getting ignored. And so they physically went and took over um, the, the atrium to, or I don't know if there's an atrium, the main office to some of the local government organizations until they would hold a meeting with them. This physical way of saying, actually, we are subjects of rights. You do need to take us seriously. And so these four different strategies, the building of collective identity, the generating and, and reinforcing of social capital, engaging in legal framing, and then the certification are this kind of rounded way of uh, coming together as an organization and then in a public facing way, making these demands for gender justice. And I've, I've outlined this in the case of the Liga, but in the book, I very much do outline it for all of the different organizations as well to show some of those commonalities in terms of the way that they chose to participate in their collective action. Thank you for illustrating it. Um, obviously, as you said, in just one of the cases rather than in the book, um, in all four, but it's a really fascinating um, model that makes just brings a lot of things together in a really coherent way, um, which is such a wonderful thing to see in a model. So just for that alone is a great contribution of the book. Thank you. Um, and it kind of therefore makes me think about kind of the bigger picture, right? Besides obviously using this framework potentially, um, given how much time you spent on the ground and over such a number of years, do you, what do you think international organizations maybe can learn from these very grassroots mobilizations? Um, is there anything they can do 
to more effectively support them, um, anything they can learn from them? Absolutely. I think in the first place, kind of focusing on some of these much smaller, much much less technical, um, you know, much less perhaps institutionalized or formalized organizations. And I say that now knowing that many of the, the organizations I did work with have kind of professionalized over the years. But when they started, it was, as I say, a group of neighbors, a group of women um, who had been displaced from the same town, uh, people who just happened to kind of be out there taking care of each other. Um, the focus on their mobilization, I think, in itself is important. And I think remembering that their mobilization can't be taken for granted. It's a very political decision. Women are weighing up whether they want to put themselves at risk to make demands for women's rights and gender justice. And so I think that uh, there's this sort of a, you know, a role that makes it on, incumbent on international organizations to go and look for them. Uh, these organizations, some of the places they live don't have great mobile phone service, doesn't have great internet. And so they're not going to be the flashiest and most professional uh, online organization, for example, but their work is incredibly important. And so I think remembering that this uh, these these very localized organizations are important to pay attention to. They're important to go looking for. They're important to support, as well as those more robust national organizations I mentioned at the beginning of our chat, um, is one of the takeaways that I absolutely encourage uh, policymakers and international actors to to continue to pursue. And I say continue because many of them are looking beyond sort of those those centralized organizations to see who they can support. And I think that one of the challenges or one of the things that I often get told when I make this suggestion is, you know, for example, from embassies, like, yeah, but this is taxpayer money. We need to be able to support these organizations, but also document and monitor and put some metrics on the work that they're doing. And so I think that what that tells me is, absolutely, I completely understand that we can't, uh, as international organizations, just be handing out money willy-nilly. But I think that there's room to make funding much more flexible. And so, for example, what I mean to say by that is as women and women's organizations apply for grants and apply for projects and apply for money and resources, remembering that, uh, for example, if women have to travel to a, a local hub, there's going to be transport costs involved. And those transport costs will probably also involve their children. Uh, that during the daytime, when many of these women are having to engage in domestic duties like cooking, childcare, education, um, care of, of elders, that there that, that means that there's value in having early morning or later in the evening, um, you know, meetings or sessions or activities. Also, I think that making sure that funding is sustainable. I've seen over the years I've lived in Colombia so many of these six-month or eight-month projects, and then the money dries up and there's no more resources. And I, I don't really know that there's value in terms of, you know, kind of change and, and real change in power dynamics if the money comes and goes. I actually think that it encourages women's organizations to compete against each other. It generates this sporadic incentive to um, to actually be able to engage in the work that they really want to do. And so often they're doing um, on a volunteer basis. Uh, and then I think the third thing that I really want to encourage or that the book really gives rise to is this this recognition that women 
even if they are, you know, not necessarily hyper-educated or even if they don't necessarily have the words or the lexicon to express themselves using technical security terms, women have a deep knowledge of the communities in which they live, where are safe places, where are unsafe places, where the risks are, how those security concerns are shifting. And so when it comes to protections, they are the experts on what they need. And so, for example, Colombia has a national protection unit which um, in this this, uh, post-accord moment is protecting social leaders. And there is, in theory, certain kind of gendered elements to it. However, the women that I've worked with, the women leaders who who I'm working with who continue to be under threat, say that the security details or the the kind of, uh, what they call them, the schemes that they're given don't really uh, make them feel more protected. And so what the book really encourages is going to these incredibly context-specific, local, um, locally-based women to ask what it is that they would need to feel safer or what it would take to actually um, provide them with the guarantees of protection that they're guaranteed by the peace accords, by the government, and, and also uh, should be guaranteed by um, international bodies and international agendas which have projects and are being carried out in country. So, for example, the Women, Peace and Security Agenda, um, which encourages women's participation in post-conflict reconstruction, is absolutely amazing. If the women are out engaging in these projects and are being targeted and are facing backlash and backlash violence and murder because of the work they're doing, I don't know kind of how um, how we can we can rectify uh, those risks. And so I think it's it's asking women what they need and it's engaging in and both a top down but also a bottom up dialogue about how to create conditions where women can engage in their feminism or in their gender equality or their women's rights work in this context of a of a kind of you know an inverted commas post-conflict moment um, without having to fear for their lives and those of their families so those are the the main uh, points that I think come out of the book and um, and I think it's it's really again just putting the lens and the focus back um, from the grassroots up and understanding and recognizing expertise um, and knowledge and a profound understanding of what it would take to make their communities more gender equal and, and safer for them. Thank you for summing up your book so brilliantly and giving such um, clear and contextual really um, recommendations. I think that both of those things are incredibly useful and incredibly powerful. Um, So thank you for sharing your expertise um, on those topics. Um, And that really just leaves me with my final question, um, which is that this is obviously something you've worked on uh, in depth over time, but the book is out now. Listeners can go read it. Um, so you mentioned a little bit in the beginning about kind of what you're doing now. And I was wondering if you can maybe share with us a sentence or two of a project you're working on that you're excited about or um, kind of what you're up to now that this book is done. Absolutely. So what I'm doing now with uh, the fellowship that I mentioned is really diving more into that question of gendered charismatic leadership. Uh, one of the things that I found in Perhaps I will admit that even in my own book, I think I somewhat fall into the trap of who is a great leader. A great leader is someone who has all of these followers. 
why do the followers follow the leader? Because they're a great leader. It becomes tautological and it's not particularly satisfying. So right now I'm working on a multi-country study to understand more about the factors that give rise to leadership and give rise particularly to women's high-risk leadership. So I'm now based in Mexico, but I'm continuing to work in Colombia. I'm also doing some work in El Salvador and Brazil. And I want to understand from self-identified and, and also identified by other uh, others, women leaders, to understand if there are certain um, parts about them or factors in their history and their life experiences that have given rise to them filling these leadership uh, these leadership positions, and then what it is that they're doing to protect themselves, why they're being targeted, and how they're protecting themselves. Uh, and then the only other thing that I did want to mention is that uh, for those listeners who may be interested in reading the book in Spanish, uh, High Risk Feminism in Colombia is coming out uh, in September with the Universidad de los Andes Press, uh, in Spanish. So I'm really excited that it's going to be available uh, in the language in which the book was researched as well and, and can be taken home. So I, I um, yeah, it's something I'm very happy to, to be able to share. And that's, um, that's how I think how it should be. Wonderful. Um, congratulations on that. That's a very cool thing. And I'm, I'm very glad you mentioned that. Um, I think that some people might be interested and that's, that's really good to hear that that's happening. Um, and thank you for sharing a little bit about your next project as well. Um, you're clearly not shying away from the tricky topics and trying to nail down very complicated things. Um, but clearly in this book have proven that that's well within your wheelhouse. So I look forward to seeing what comes out of that. Um, but while you're off investigating uh, leadership, listeners can read the book that we've been discussing, which again is titled High Risk Feminism in Colombia, Women's Mobilization in Violent Contexts, out in 2022 from Rutgers University Press. Dr. Julia Zolver, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Miranda.